Welcome to Pixel Pizza. Did she say pizza? Your ultimate source for chiptunes, video game talk, and pepperoni. Delivered to you from Los Angeles and into the digital cyberspace of the 2020s. Pizza power! That's right, when super giant pizza. I want a large, thick crust with double cheese, ham, pepperoni. Pizza time. Welcome back to the Pixel Pizza Podcast. You just listened to Tidal Plant Zone Act 1, which is a cover of a song from Sonic Triple Trouble used in the game Sonic Triple Trouble 16-bit by our guest today. He is a game designer and director and also a podcaster. And his name is Noah Copeland. How you doing, Noah? I'm doing all right. Doing great. Happy to talk with you. Likewise. So I'd like to start off the show by asking, when in your life did you know you wanted to work in games? Uh, so it all starts at Walmart. <laughs> do, you, do you remember when uh, you know department stores used to have the demo kiosks for like GameCube and stuff where like the controller would be at your eye level but the screen was like 30 feet in the air yes. <laughs> you have to like move <laughs> your neck up just to get it cool so i saw somebody playing sonic adventure 2 uh on the gamecube then and it blew my mind i thought it was mm -hmm. the coolest thing ever however i'm like you know 10 so i don't have a gamecube and i don't have sonic adventure 2 that's a lot of money for a 10 year old mm -hmm. but i walk over to the next aisle where the pc games are and there they had Sonic 3 and Sonic CD in a two-pack for Windows 98. Oh. <laughs> for like 10 bucks. And like 10 bucks I can do. I can mow a lawn and get there. Yeah. Right. But whatever that that speedy little blue thing on that screen was, that was very cool. Um, so I bought uh that Sonic 3 two-pack and I played it, and I'm like, I think I like video games. You know, my aunt got me a Game Boy Advance. And I was like, I love this. And I'm a creative person, I think, kind of naturally. Mm -hmm. And anytime I like something, I want to make my own of that and just sort of I start imitating what I see. And so the moment I got into video games, I started just drawing out like uh, I draw a controller and then point all the arrows to it and tell what each button would do for an imaginary game in my head. I start drawing level designs on the back of like my homework in like <laughs> elementary school. And that type of thing. And I think that's when I was like, dude, I want to make games. And I wanted to do that uh, when I got older. Um, but I, at some point, I sort of abandoned that, forgot about it, got interested in music and wanted to be a musician for a while uh, before it sort of came full circle. And I came back into wanting to do games again. Uh, you know, I'd liked a variety of games, but obviously first love was Sonic. So I came back to Sonic and was like, I want to do my own Sonic game. I've always the Sonic fan game scene has always been very strong, even back when I was in elementary school. Definitely. Um, so now I'm like, well, I'm a little older and smarter. I remember programming games in Game Maker, like little, uh, just little silly little platformers that were like one screen long in like third grade. 
now I'm in college at that at the this point in the story. I was like, let me try for real. And I started working on an original Sonic fan game before I was like, I played, I was actually working as the boom operator on like a, uh, uh, on a film, on like awesome. an indie film. And <laughs> we'd wrapped for the day. And one of the people in the crew uh, had a PS2 with them with uh, Sonic uh, Gems collection. And we right. started playing Sonic Triple Trouble. And I was like, you know, that's a fun that's a that's a game that I think I could take that and make it a Genesis game and be it'd be really fun. I've always wanted to make a game, but I've kind of been out of that for a while. Let me get back into that. And I fell in love all over with it again. Really started not just loving games, but falling in love with just game design and level design. Um, learn to tolerate programming, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that. Really into, you know, game music and that type of thing. And that's kind of where it started. And I've I've had such a fun time making a Sonic fan game. And I think the reception has been incredibly positive. I can't believe oh, yeah. how nice people have been about the game. It's made me go like, I think I should do this. I think I should graduate from fan games, start making my own games, and just kind of go from there. And so that's where we're at now in this journey. That's really exciting. I have been going down this deep rabbit hole of like old home videos of people in Walmart in the early 2000s in the oh, video I've game section. I've seen those too. They're so good. <laughs> I love them. It's so funny that you brought that up. This deep core memory nostalgia just bubbles to the surface. It's wild. 100%. Uh, yeah, so I know you mentioned you've done a lot of like composition and sound design and i was wondering when you kind of got more back into game design and that stuff was there anything for like composing for games or other media that sort of helped influence the way you mm -hmm. go into full game development yeah so i was mostly working on in terms of composing i was mostly working on like short films in the oklahoma film and music scene in which i was living in at the time it's actually expanded quite a bit since i've left some like tax law incentive things has sort of made oklahoma like a nice place for productions to shoot and stuff mm -hmm. um but at the time i was just composing for like some indie films there i had a one film i worked on that actually got to screen at san diego comic-con whoa and that was really eye-opening to kind of get on that it was the movie was about like comic books and comic book nerds and stuff so it was <laughs> super targeted at that audience and it was really really grateful that we got to screen there and um so i was sort of doing that and i was like i i really love games though i i would also like to do it for music for games and you know i worked on did some songs for some games here, songs for some games there, but none of them ever got released. They'd always get canceled. Oh. And it was really hard for me to sort of get um, credit as here's something, you know, I worked on that you can go play. Here's a shipped game. Right. When they would all get canceled. Right. And I was trying to get like maybe like a sound design job or a composer job um, in Austin where I moved. And I was like, well, a lot of them aren't even going to pay attention until like I have a released game under my belt. I'm like, well, 
by God, if I can't find a released game, I'll just make one myself. And so that's when I dusted off the idea of like Sonic, uh, that sort of Sonic um, fan game. And I was like, I know Sonic. I know how to do Sonic well. I'll make a Sonic game. I'll be done in, you know, maybe two months tops. Spoiler alert, it took five years. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I'll have my own game. And that way I can actually get like music jobs. And then what I found in sort of that process, I'm like, oh my, uh-oh, I, I kind of like, all of this i like this whole mm. thing and so that's kind of how that sort of shaped from just music to sort of a more broader picture and that type of thing great what part of making it would you say took the longest because it took so much longer than you expected Oof. so part of it is just learning how to make a game right mm versus learning how to make that game specifically right it's like i was learning both of those at the same time um i'd say one thing that is really really hard particularly with sonic is the level design um the original level designer on the first three sonic games uh is a guy named hirokazu yashuhara and Mm -hmm. i think he is an underrated genius in game design and level design because His level design style that he made with Sonic is unlike any other platformer. It's not like Mario. It's not like Mega Man. It's not like Donkey Kong. It's this, you know, Mario maps are very linear. They focus on one idea. They develop that idea throughout the the stage with the sort of theme, and then they discard it at the end and start all over with the next level. Um, Instead of just a logical through line of one idea, Sonic levels are just like novelty constantly. We don't care if an idea gets seen all the way through to the end in Sonic. Mm -hmm. Just keep introducing new ideas, keep it fresh, keep it flashy. You know, it's the, much like Sega was the 90s, it's the opposite of Mario. It's like speed and spectacle and just all of these. What's really great is these intersecting paths. If you ever like just type in like a, a Sonic 3 map and just get like a zoomed out view of like a Sonic level, it looks like an anthill. Like it's just all these pathways just going in and out and intersecting each other in a way that I think is very um, unique to Sonic and that you really don't see anywhere else. And he doesn't get enough credit for it, but it's really hard to imitate. I think you didn't see anyone nail it again until Sonic Mania when the level designer in that game, Brad Flick, who had been (laughs) studying Sonic uh, for like, you know, 20 years since he was a kid, made his own Sonic fan games and that type of thing. Like it takes a lot of work to nail that style down. And so that's what I think took the hardest because it was kind of, it was a creative challenge because I'm trying to imitate specifically someone else's um, style um, without, with trying to have a little bit of my own creativity without straying too far. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. You You want to have, your own personality to it, but you also want to do what people want are coming to you to experience. Because I'm a Sonic fan, right? So I also have respect and reverence for that, right? Yeah. So I want to do right by it. I don't want to just say like, I'm going to make a Sonic game, but <laughs> forget if it feels like Sonic. It needs to mm. feel like Noah. It's like, no, I want it to feel like Sonic. Like, that's the reason I'm making this, you know? So I'm sort of like, it was like, I was like this uh, virtual understudy of Hirokazu Yashuhara just studying his maps, I mean, just for five years, looking at them, how they worked, 
playing the games constantly, just trying to soak all that in. And it's such a specific style that I think that was the hardest part. Yeah, I had no idea it was like mainly one guy who did the level design for all three of the games. That's super impressive. Yeah, and the fact that he nailed it like kind of on the first try, right? Yeah. He's just like, it's like one of the first games he worked on. It's like, we're going to, it was just like a team of three on like that first Sonic game for the most part, a programmer, an artist, and a designer. And it's just like, yeah, uh, we'll try this thing. It'll be a hedgehog, it'll be fast. And then they create this just wicked design style that, you know, took 20 30 years to, <laughs> for uh, to someone to get it right again yeah wow it's it's been a journey i mean i think the coolest thing about the sonic level design for me is that you can play a level like two three times and see entirely different stuff each time depending yeah. on what route you take exactly that's that anthill multiple route thing is it's it's sort of an evergreen thing because it wants novelty it wants new things to be happening. Exactly. Like you said, you play it multiple times, you get something different. It's it's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like watching a movie you really like and like appreciating all the little details. Mm hmm. Yep. So, I mean, you weren't alone in making Triple Trouble 16 bit. You assembled a pretty sizable team. How did you sort of get that band together? Yeah. So that was interesting. So, um originally i was like ah, i'm just gonna do it all by myself which stupid idea <laughs> um part of the reason why what really gave me a lot of steam at the start of triple trouble was i was like okay um there's this artist out there just this german artist who goes by uh d light years d had already made some maps of triple trouble or so, some sprites uh, some tiles of triple trouble but done in a 16-bit genesis style which is what i wanted to do mm. and i'm like well well look you're right there half the art's already already done <laughs> had, had the enemies too and i'm like well let's just cool art is my weakness so there's it's already let's just do that and then eventually i was actually um i did some play testing for another sonic fan game called sonic time twisted mm. and the, the developer of that game overbound new d and actually hooked me up and is like, oh, why don't you and D connect? And so then D started working with me on like making the missing art that we didn't have. And it just sort of started expanding from there. Once I sort of announced the project, the advantage of working on a fan game is that there's an existing fan game or existing fan base that already has talented people in it. And so they're like, they reach out to you and say, I would like to help out. I'd like to get on board. And so you could kind of just pick up people from there. So I had a lot of artists um, come out and help. Um, I think the it was important, though, and this is sort of some advice I'd give to somebody working kind of small and independently, is don't add too many people too soon because you need to sort of define your vision and set that in stone before you start adding a bunch of people in there. Because if you had a bunch of people too early on and the game is still sort of formless and shapeless, just kind of nebulous, everyone's going to try to come in there and try to shape it the way they want to. And when you got, you know, six different opinions on how it should be, it's hard to get it down to an agreed upon thing that everyone's happy with. So if you sort of define your vision and 
This is why when I think the first demo, I had maybe two, three people with me, much smaller than the final game. We added a, maybe four more artists like in the last year of this five-year thing. Wow. But you, the first demo was just get it out and show what we're trying to do here. Show the vision uh, that will be executed on. Show the the vibe, the aesthetic, the feel of the game. This is what we're doing. Here it is. It's tangible, not an abstract thing. Here's an example of what we're going to go do. And then that train is already moving. And from that point on, people can jump on that train if they like where it's headed. And that makes it a lot easier. But there's a lot of talented musicians and like chiptune artists. The sonic music is great, right? Yeah. So many good sonic songs. So there's a lot of cover artists right there. So I was learning how to make music for the Sega Genesis sound chip. Because one thing about this project was I wanted it to feel so authentic to the Sega Genesis games. I wanted it to... So I studied... Man, I listened to... I think I added it up sometime. It was something like a couple hundred hours of Sega Genesis music Hmm. that I listened to to try to just get the vibe of what that sound chip could and couldn't do. And I stayed within the limitations of how many channels could play at one time in that. Um, And I think that limitation sort of breeds that creativity. But as I was learning that, I found that there were other artists out there who were really good at doing Sega Genesis chiptune music. And so in that case, I think I actually reached out to them and was like, hey, can you do a couple songs? Because what I found was helpful is every stage has act one and act two. I would do act one. I would take the original Sonic song, and then I'd remix it in like my way. But when it came time to act two, I did a couple of act twos on my own, but it's like, whew, I already did my take on it. Now I got to come up with another take on that. It was easier to just have a new person come in. I'm like, how would you interpret this? You've got a different mind, a different creative voice. Let's use your voice, see how that sounds. And I, that, that ended up being a good um, sort of way of doing it is an act once me and then act two someone else. And uh, kind of going from there. But, you know, as it goes on, you just had more people want to chip in. Uh, people want to play test. Got some people who helped with programming. The thing that I thought was really cool is if you did not know this, Sonic and Sega in general are popular in Brazil. Oh, yeah. Yes. And and for your audience, in, in case you're already aware of this, it's like this weird bizarro world where if like Sega won the console wars <laughs> because... Um, and I might get some of the details of this fuzzy, so forgive me, but the general gist of it is that at the time in like the 80s and 90s, uh, there was like weird import laws. So Nintendo wasn't officially in Brazil. If you played a Nintendo game in Brazil, it was likely like a like a bootleg of some kind. Yeah. But Sega signed this um, deal with a company I think called like Tech Toy. Yeah, Tech Toy. I've heard of them. Yes. Who was like, all right, you can, here's the Sega, you can make the Sega Genesis locally in Brazil. And so Sega was, you know, was there in Brazil, but Nintendo wasn't. So Brazil feels fondly about the master system, master system, the way uh, maybe America might feel about the NES. In fact, Tech Toy still sells like a a sort of master system classic, kind of like the right. NES classic. The Tech Toy you can buy on their website right now. And so I had. I noticed that in my uh, download, like looking at the who was downloading the demo, the country of origin was a lot of 
Brazilians more so than, you know, I had any reason to believe beforehand. And so it, it was very important to me. I was like, well, let's get a Portuguese translation, a Brazilian Portuguese translation of the game. And since a lot of people are playing from there, let's put it in that language. And once I started doing that, I had a bunch of other people pop up and be like, I'd like to translate it into Spanish. I'd like to translate it in German. Uh, I like to translate it in Ukrainian. We have wow. it in 10 languages now that you can play the game in. And those were all just pretty much volunteers who just sent me a message and were like, I'll translate all of it. Um, I speak the language. Here's Here's all the lines you need. And I was like, heck yeah, I'll put it in the game. Let's go. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like like the process sounds like jazz, like you were riffing off this original game. People came in either in the music or the arts to start riffing off what you're doing. And it it's harmonious, you know? Yeah, I think that's kind of a good way to put it, right? You sort of get that uh, main sort of rhythm and beat going and everyone's just sort of chiming in and putting their little uh, riffs on top of it. Exactly. So, I mean, I think this is a good jumping off point for the next question I had, which is, what would you say were, what was the easiest part and the hardest part about adapting an 8-bit game into 16-bit? Hmm. Easiest part and hardest part. Man. <laughs> I think I'm going to have a hard time figuring out what the easiest part is. <laughs> Well, you can and skip it if the, you want. I think the whole thing was kind of difficult because yeah. it was, I originally, so all the level design, like we talked about earlier, it's the same sort of stage themes and aesthetic as the 8-bit game, like winter level, jungle level, but the actual level design itself is all new, like all me. I originally was just going to take the 8-bit level designs and then just give them better graphics and call it a day. The thing is, it doesn't work because the physics of 8-bit Sonic versus 16-bit Sonic are so different that it just it doesn't translate. Like Sonic on the 8-bit consoles has a really tall jump. And so you put 16-bit Sonic in there and he can't make it over the the ledges and the gaps because they're just relative relative to itself. The physics are so different, right? And so I had to start from scratch and learn the level design. Um which I think was very hard. I think the soundtrack was also difficult because <laughs> I had a lot working against me. The soundtrack for the original Sonic Triple Trouble was mm-hmm. done by Yayoi Fujimori. And this is the only Sonic game she ever worked on. Wow. And so it sounds nothing like any of the other Sonic games. There's been a variety of composers that have worked on Sonic and it all they all have their own style, but there's sort of a general Sonic style. Yeah. And... Fujimori's is something else. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like, wow, how do I make this thing that's definitely not typical Sonic music sound more like typical Sonic music? That was a creative challenge. And I think my music background helped me a lot uh, in doing that. One of the hardest things was finding the balance between, okay, so this this isn't a literal remaster. This is more like a spiritual like reimagining. We want to keep the spirit of the original game but make it work in this new hypothetical Genesis context. I think one of the hardest things was balance. When are we taking it too far in the making it feel so much like Genesis Sonic that it no longer feels like the original game? 
And at what point is it feeling too much like the original game, but no longer feels like it would have belonged in Genesis Sonic? Mm. And so that was part of the part of why I made it a, a direct sequel to Sonic 3 and Knuckles. It, it literally picks up where the plot left off. That connected tissue helped bridge that gap there, but also keeping all of the characters and plot elements of the original Triple Trouble was important too. So it was a little bit of a balance. And I think most people um, like where it landed. You know, I've had a few people tell me like, ah, it didn't feel like enough like the original Triple Trouble, which hurts me to hear that. But, or people say like, uh, you know, it didn't feel enough like the Genesis Sonic games. And I'm like, well, did you even play the original Triple Trouble? And they usually say no. And I'm like, well, there you go. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, but those have been pretty few for the most part. I think I struck the balance. It was difficult. And I did use the good feedback of my team to help us navigate that. Like, here's a good example. Like, yeah, uh, we had an artist named Michael that worked on uh, Michael Wave. That's what he goes by. Uh, he worked on the game. Uh, he loves Triple Trouble. And there's a part in the game, uh, not too spoilerly, but spoiler alert, like any Sonic game, Super Sonic shows up at some point. Okay. Sure. That's that's not, I'm not breaking <laughs> anything huge there. Um, when he transforms into Super Sonic, I wanted it to be this cool epic moment where I brought in the music from Sonic 3 and Knuckles, like that main theme which is really nostalgic for me and for a lot of Sonic fans. I'm like, yeah. And then that's the moment where the theme you know and love comes in and it's really great. Uh, Michael pushed back on that and said, well, hold on. This game is Triple Trouble. It should play the Triple Trouble theme right there. Mm. Not this theme from some other game. I'm like, yeah, but the nostalgia. And he's like, no, no, no. Don't just rely on the nostalgia for something else. Make sure it stays true to what it is. Create new nostalgia for triple trouble that may not exist. That's what we're doing here. Huh. And I'm like, bye, George, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and I went with, went with the triple trouble theme and instead. And I think in hindsight, he was a hundred percent right. And I'm glad that uh, he said that and steered it in that direction. Yeah, no, that's because yeah, if you're giving triple trouble specifically a new lease on life, you want to show people, what's really cool about it would you yeah. say that there's been like a sort of a newfound appreciation for the original game from people who didn't play it or maybe people who didn't like it the first time that you've come heard around after yeah experience yours i've heard all of the above in the people that have played it i've heard people say like i i played the original game as a kid and i didn't really like it but this is awesome this actually you know makes me f feel better about it this is the definitive way to play triple trouble I've had people tell me I loved the original game and this is even better. This is exactly what it needs to be. I've had people tell me I didn't play the original game at all, but whatever this is, is awesome. I, maybe I need to go check those out. So all over the spectrum. That's great. That's great. So I think now is probably a good time for us to go to our musical break for the episode. We are going to be playing another track from Triple Trouble 16-bit, and that is the final Trouble Zone, which is a Noah Copeland original. So, yeah. listen to that and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Pixel Pizza Podcast. You just listened to Final Trouble Zone, and we are here with Noah Copeland talking more about Sonic Triple Trouble 16-bit and his other endeavors. And my next question was, I mean, you mentioned that you connected with uh, your pixel artist who was kind of reinterpreting the art, but the Sonic fan game scene is so vast and so lively that had there been any other attempts to remake the game? And if so, what did you want to do differently from what they had done? Uh, I don't know that there had been really any other attempts to make Triple Trouble other than D Lightyear's herself making those sprites and kind of hoping someone would pick them up mm-hmm. and make a Triple Trouble remake. And they sat there for like 10 years and no one did anything with them. Oh, Maybe, wow. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah, I was really lucky to, I think it was more like eight years, but I was really lucky that, you know, she had this just baking to be done and no one really did it. You might have had a mod or two here and there where someone would like do a mod of Sonic 2 and they might do a level using those tiles and kind of reference Triple Trouble, but like oh, a straight up remake, no one ever really did. Um, I got lucky too because second time I was lucky is I was originally debating on whether or not I was going to remake Sonic Triple Trouble or Sonic Chaos. And I chose Triple Trouble, which is great because at the time, over in England, not to my knowledge, uh, A Plus Start, who does the YouTube channel Son of a Glitch, if you, or YouTube show Son of a Glitch, if you've ever seen it, uh-huh. uh, he was working on remaking Sonic Chaos. Wow. So we both started these Game Gear rem- remakes at like the same time. And his, I think, had a demo before mine and was really looking really great and really swanky. And there's no way I could have done as good of a job as that. I'm like, ooh, I'm really glad I did not do Sonic Chaos because <laughs> why would I even compete with this? But Triple Trouble's all mine. This is <laughs> this territory is mine. I can do this <laughs> and I'll make it good. So I think it, it worked out in that respect. Yeah, it sounds like it really did. I mean, I've heard people say Triple Trouble is the better game, just the as far as the originals. But I, I would agree with that. And I think that's why I ultimately went with Triple Trouble is I'm like, I think Chaos could benefit more from a remake, but Triple Trouble was already better. So I was like, well, that'll make it easier. Because <laughs> <laughs> again, I thought I would be done in like a, two months or something. Because I'm like, well, it's already better. So that'll make it easier. And that's why I went with Triple Trouble. But yeah. And the Chaos remake was more of like a Sonic Mania style. Oh, cool. And so I think that was that was another difference too, is they were going more like Mania, a modern high bit pixel art, really good looking, where I was going full 90s accuracy. Like the game, I, I've since changed it because no one used it, but at launch, the game by default launched in four by three, oh. like old sport, old uh, school aspect ratio. Yeah. But but I found is everyone instantly went to the option menu and turned on 16 by 9. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So now in the recent version, it just runs that by default. It's still there if you want the 4 by 3 But that's how much I was like wanting to just go full into the authentic. Like all the visuals are down to the color palette. Like there's never more than roughly about 60, 64 colors on screen at one time on a Sega Genesis game. And so in Sonic Triple Trouble 16-bit, there's never more than 60 colors on screen for our game either. Like, we are very uh, sticklers about making making it true to the Genesis. We're like, if this 
was in an alternate reality where there's just one more Sonic game on the Genesis. What would it look like? That's what we want. Mm. And so that's what we did. That's super impressive. Are there like any particular key differences you found there have been between making a fan game and an original game? Yeah, and I think I kind of sort of touched on it earlier is right. when you're doing your original game, it's your thing, do what you want. Um, you don't have to really be true to anybody other than yourself. Uh, when it's a fan game, if you're you know doing it right, I think you have a reverence for something that already exists. So that's both a blessing and a curse. Uh, the, the curse is that like sometimes you're like, oh, I'd really love to do this, but you're like, but that no longer feels respectful of what I'm trying to do or what I'm trying to honor. The blessing is you have a finished golden example of what you're aiming for, right? Because so many times the issue when you're making a game, like an original game, is like, I've got this idea in my head, but right now that's all it is, is a vague, you know, flash of an image in my head of what the finished game might maybe look like. Oh, yeah. Will that even be fun? Will it even be good? Time to do some prototyping with some, you know, boring gray boxes and try to get <laughs> it functioning and make it kind of fun and good and see and kind of develop it from here and follow down that trail. Um, wherewith making like a fan game or like a Sonic game, especially when you're trying to be as authentic as possible, you have the finished product and you're reverse engineering that to try to make it look like that. So you at least know that the, um, how would you say, the goal is good. So if you're, if you're working on a Sonic fan game and what you play isn't fun, it's not because your game design um, goals are fundamentally flawed because you've played a good Sonic game, you know they can work, you're just not doing it right. Where if you're working on an original game, you might be like, maybe this idea is just not salvageable, hmm. right? So I think that's sort of... Um, one benefit of working on the fan game but the uh the benefit of the original work is that you also aren't chained by somebody else's vision and you can or ideas you can kind of do your own thing and go your own way and make it true to your your creativity yeah i never really considered that it's it's a completely different design process yeah like one's kind of like forward and moving the uncharted territory and the other one's sort of like working backwards from the the end right exactly so moving on to some of your other projects you recently launched your own podcast i've got a little competition a talking game dev <laughs> podcast and i'm wondering what are the biggest things so far that you've learned from talking with other developers i think um what's been interesting is just how different every game developer is from one another. Despite us all being game developers, we're all very different in what we're trying to achieve, right? And a lot of different, like, opinions, you know? Um, I got one guy who is trying to write, who's like, I'm making games, but I'm also, like, doing an entire, like, comic book and, like, an animation and, like, telling stories that way. Hmm. And then uh, the next guest I have after that is, like, I don't care about storytelling at all. And he's like, I just skip past text in all games. And I'm like, oh, you're breaking my heart. <laughs> right. And so, but what's been interesting is they've both been very practical. Um, 
and I think they're a little further ahead on their journey than I am. Um, one in particular, one up Indy was telling me about how he's like the first uh, measure of time for your game is the most important because particularly of the Steam refund policy. You buy a game, Steam gives you a certain period of which you can be refunded. So he's like, put all of your best resources into those first uh, few moments because if it's taking too while to get good, you're probably already ref that customer may have already refunded before they even got to the good stuff. And I was like, wow, that is like a, a practical thing that I hadn't thought of before because it, it's in one way, it's kind of, I don't know how to say it. You know, when you're working on game and it's a creative thing, a lot of times you're thinking completely artistically, completely creatively. And that's like a thing that what one up Indy said exists outside of just pure artistry. And it's more on like the practical, actual, here's how it's going to play out in the real world. Maybe consider that. I'm just like, that's something I hadn't thought about before. So I yeah, thought that was more of a business choice. Yeah, it's like a it's like a business choice that affects the art. And you can design the art around it and make that work. But that is an interesting like external factor to uh, throw into your own creative process. Yeah, definitely. Hadn't thought about that at all. I mean, are there any things like that? that you feel like you're taking into your game development journey moving forward? Uh, I definitely want a uh, a pop and intro, right? <laughs> and so I've scripted out, or have it scripted out, but outlined the uh, opening um, to my next game. And we're just like, let's make it the most exciting part. Um, let's explosions and fire. It's just going to be, it's going to open with a bang. It's not going to be a slow beginning. It's not going to be like a Skyward Sword type thing. Oh, yeah. It's going to be, you know, more like, uh, you know, Ghost of Tsushima or something where it just opens in media res and it's just like going for it type thing. So that's sort of what I'm bringing forward there. Yeah, that, those are definitely some of the most effective openings. I remember that big badass battle scene in Ghost of Tsushima that hooked yeah. me. Yeah, exactly. You're hooked. You're like, all right, no, I'm out of the refund window now. Yeah. <laughs> to his point. Speaking of your game, you've announced that you are working on an original game right now. It's a 2D action adventure platformer. Is there anything more specific you can share or is it all close to the vest right now? It is a little close to the vest, but I can kind of talk about it in a little more detail than I have. Great. Um, just because I haven't revealed it completely. I do want to save that. But um, yeah, of course. Familiar with the term character action game. This was like a term Sony liked to use back in like the 90s and early 2000s. Because uh-huh. you remember after Sonic, it was like a race to everyone have their own Sonic, right? Yeah. You had your Crash Bandicoots, your Ty the Tasmanian Tiger, your Spyro, your Ratchet, you know, Vex, Gex. Oh, right. Ty and Sly. You could make a song out of them. Like there's enough. You know, oh, yeah. Uh, like the mascot platformer type of thing, right? And so that's when I was, uh, you know, sort of first getting into games is around that time. So that always stuck with me. And it was like, man, if back in those days, if like, if your studio didn't take out an ad in Nintendo Power that said something like, you know, no coins, no rings, no problem, move over, Mario, you know, or something that didn't talk smack about, like, the other mascots at the time. It's like, were you even trying to be successful? Because <laughs> that's, like, what you did back then. And so that always stuck with me. 
So I kind of want to carry that forward. The other thing that was happening around the time when I was a kid, more on TV, was like the team-ups, especially like the cool team, especially if it's an animal team. Because mm-hmm. while games were trying to be uh, games were trying to be Sonic, TV was trying to be Ninja Turtles. Right. So you'd have your Street Sharks, your SWAT cats, you know, Mummies Alive, or your non-animal teams like Power Rangers. Power Rangers were huge. So it's like you got your team. They each had their own color, and they work together. And so what I'm trying to do is sort of mix those two things that I love so much. So I love the animal mascot uh, action game. And I love the old like team up where everyone's got their own color or their own elemental power. Like Bionicle was really big for me. Oh, yeah. And I want to mash them together. So you got your mascot animal team up group. Or the simplest way I can put it is it's Sonic meets Ninja Turtles. Hmm. So It'll be a fun animal. And I think the secret is like, it's got to be like a weird animal. No one really thinks about too much. Like you can't do like a dog. Like, yeah, of course. It's got to be like a hedgehog or a bandicoot, you know, or a a Tasmanian tiger, you know, something you hadn't really thought about before. And so it's going to be a cool animal, but there's going to be a team, but there's going to be, it's going to be Sonic-esque, but there's going to be a little more influence on combat. We mentioned Ghost of Tsushima earlier. I do like me a good combat game, you know, the new God of Wars or right. a Jedi Fallen or a Jedi Survivor just came out. So, and, you know, Ninja Turtles certainly has a history with beat em ups. So it's still a platformer. It's still very Sonic y, but it's got those uh, combat elements like a guacamole or something like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the emphasis, I think, on strong storytelling. And I am so excited about it. And the moment I can announce it and show you guys for real, <laughs> I am elated to. Um, but if you liked my last game, I really hope you like this one. I think it is up that alley. It's not like I'm turning around and making some sort of, you know, dating sim or something completely out of left of <laughs> field. It's still like, if you liked the Sonic, I think you'll like this too. And so I am excited to officially uh, reveal it at some point. That's great. You sound really excited. You sound really passionate about it. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I hope it leaks onto the uh, player. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, that is about all the questions I had lined up. Uh, So thank you so much for joining me, Noah. Yeah, absolutely. It was a blast. Likewise, a 3D blast, if you will. Got him. Got him. Uh, And so I like to sign off or sort of wrap things up by asking, this is the Pixel Pizza Podcast. Where is your favorite pizza place, Noah? Oh, good heavens. I wasn't prepared for this. (laughs) Oh, gosh. It is. um, I have to think of the name, but it is in Oklahoma City. It is called Empire Slice House. Mm. And when you get a slice of pizza and some people may scoff at this, but it comes with a side of ranch. Okay. And you dip it in the ranch and it is incredible. Sounds good. I'm trying not to scoff, but <laughs> I'm I'm sure it's really good. I believe you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that also sounds like a like a killer Sonic level name, Empire Slice House Zone Act One. Dude, yeah. All right, I, I write that down. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. And yeah, that about wraps things up. Where can people keep track of you and your upcoming work? Uh, so you can probably go to my website, uh, which is just uh, Noah Copeland 
dot com, or you follow me on um, my Twitter page, which is just Noah in Copeland. The in is very important. Don't forget mm-hmm. it. And uh, yeah, um, if I'm or on the Game Jolt page where you download Triple Trouble, if I'm going to be talking about something new, that's probably where I'm going to be talking about it first. Uh, my YouTube page with the the Game Dev podcast, Talking Game Dev, is also there. At my YouTube channel, which is also Noah in Copeland. Don't forget that in. Got it. We will not. <laughs> so. All right. That about wraps things up. We are going to be heading off with one more song from Triple Trouble 16-Bit that is also a cover from the original game, and that is Great Turquoise Zone Act 1. So listen to that, and we'll see you next week, listeners. 